Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay. Uh, it's a custom of our group to just go around and say our names. Um, and Stefan's new, if there's anybody else that came in late who's new or returning after long absence, <coughs> let us know your name. Um, my name's Grisha. I'm Tom. And one. I'm Joe. I'm Shantan. My name is Michael. I'm Jin. Jonathan. My name is Kat. My name is Mark. Uh, my name is Harley. I'm Jerry. Stephen. My name is Clint. My name is Ray. My name is Matthew. I'm Jeff. Dennis. My name is David. Tony. I'm Brad. My name is David. Peter. My name is Paul. David. I'm one. I'm Richard. I'm Jim. Gary. Joanne. Welcome, everyone. Um, so, today's teacher, Diagon Gaither, um, began Buddhist practice in 1995 in the Vipassana tradition and then began to study Zen in 2003 with Rush He received lay ordination in 2006 when he was given the name Daigon, or Great God. He received priest ordination in July 2011. His work, practice, and free time include many hours devoted to community service in a variety of ways, including his work as one of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and as a volunteer at Zen Hospice Project. He has spoken nationwide on a variety of issues and has sat on a number of boards and committees that serve community and social justice. So welcome, Diane. I'll give you a five-minute moment. Okay. I actually really appreciate the clock. You'd be surprised at the number of places you go to speak and you... I don't actually wear a watch, and so uh, being able to track time is really useful. Um, I want to start by apologizing. I was supposed to give this talk uh, several weeks ago and uh, woke up from a nap on Friday afternoon and couldn't move and spent about four days uh, with my first ever back problem, um, which is really interesting. But uh, So I'm going to give the same talk. I was asked actually to speak about my um, thesis. I just finished a, a graduate program at the Graduate Theological Union where I got an MA in Buddhist Studies, a Master's of Divinity at the same time, and a few certificates, because uh, why not overdo it? <laughs> um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about my thesis today, um, which was what I was asked to talk about. And my, the title of my thesis is actually Healing in Oppression, Contributions from uh, Buddhist teachings and communities, um, which is a really fancy way of, of talking about 
um, Buddhist theology uh, and, and what is sort of to me a central piece of Buddhist practice which is healing um, and, and so in this endeavor to sort of understand what does it mean to practice and, and I have to say this is also a, a dense academic which also means pretty boring um, piece of work it's about 112 pages and so I'm going to just sort of try and rush through it with enough time for us to have a meaningful dialogue um, with your contributions as well um, but really so it's looking at it's looking at healing and specifically healing within oppression as a queer guy who uh, grew up and from the age of about 16 recognized that I was white and that that carried a certain um, uh, dishonesty in what I, I was raised in a conservative family and so at about 16 I discovered oh my god like I don't understand history I don't understand a bunch of stuff that other people did and so it sort of set in motion a bunch of things and so I've, I've sent, spent a lot of time looking at oppression and then looking at specifically how is it that I as a queer guy who uh, never really could live in the closet um, I've always been sort of uh, my mother likes to call it fancy. <laughs> Sometimes fancier than others. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I, I, and who's experienced a great amount of oppression and then starting to recognize in my 20s that I was actually contributing to oppression of others. As a man, as a white guy, um, I, I, when I came, came out, when I um, started to sort of uh, participate in queer culture outside of parks, um, <laughs> uh, most of my, uh, the people surrounding me were, were lesbian separatists. And so a great deal of my politic and my understanding of queerness actually comes from this uh, feminist, womanist perspective. Um, and so, uh, as a budding little queer activist, I started to recognize that um, social justice was not just about AIDS and queerness and, and uh, it wasn't what I thought it was. Uh, so all of that is sort of the introduction to this topic. And most of the bulk of the work is focused on the ideas around healing. So I get into, my understanding of oppression is that oppression is actually a system and a practice. We practice oppression. And, and oppression is practiced on us. It's not an event. Because it operates within a system, if we understand it as a, as a practice, then we can also understand our own healing as a practice. How is it that I practice healing in the world? And most of my work um, around healing relies on a woman's 
the work of a woman named Paula Arai, who is a Buddhist scholar who uh, wrote a really wonderful book called Bringing Zen Home, And in which she talks about Buddhist laywomen and their, and their sort of ritual life. And she lays out this idea of healing as a ten-principled thing. Um, what I'm going to focus on is her first principle of healing is experiencing interrelatedness. And so I go into a great deal about what it means first to practice the experiencing part, and also, what do we mean when we say interrelatedness or interdependence? Um, and 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 how do we how do we understand those as ideas? So um, first, I want to talk about the experiencing, and I think that it's really important that we understand that Buddhism, at its core, is an embodied practice, and it's a and it's a it's a practice that is not really about what I can read or study or um, listen to. It's not something that somebody else can give to me. It's something that I only experience through my own experience. Um, in, in Zen, we like to say, the world worlds the world. My teacher likes to say, experience the experience you're experiencing. <laughs> So this idea that at its core, what we do when we sit on the cushion and what we do when we try to live a life of vow and of intentionality is we're trying to get to an understanding of what it is that we are experiencing. What's it like to be me in this moment? And how is that different than what it's like to be me in the next moment? So if we start from this understanding of taking our place, which is another way of experiencing the experience that we're experiencing, I like to call it taking my place. When I can just be embodied in this place. One of the experiences that arises in those moments is interrelatedness or interdependence. One of the leading scholars who talks about that is a uh, a guy named Nagarjuna, or uh, there's numerous ways to say his name. I like Nagarjuna. And he talks about it at the, in, in um, what's, what's called the Loka Sutra. He says, this is because that is. This is not because that is not. This ceases to be because that ceases to be. So there's two pieces to understand here. One is, is that everything arises because of everything else. This moment happens because of everything else that's happening in this moment around the world. The world, world's the world. But it's not just, a, it's not just that we're connected. It's not just that we are in the mix of all of this stuff, but we're actually causing it. 
it's not just that this exists with that, but this exists because of that. So all things arise with and because of everything else. Does that sort of make sense? So, but how do we understand that in the context of anatta, which is uh, no self? And this is the big question that Nagarjuna was really trying to dig at. And this is sort of uh, the beginning, this was all happening at the beginning of what is known as the Mahayana or the Prajnaparamita sort of school of Buddhism arising. Now, we like to think that um, this was somehow a separate school and all the monks were living in this monastery and the, and the more traditional monks were living in this monastery. But the truth is, is they were all practicing together. But these monks started to question and try to figure out as through their own experience what it was that we could figure... What, what does it mean to be the cause of something and have no self? And so Nagarjuna sort of proposes and, and, and builds a structure on what are called the two truths. Um, I'm currently working on a, a, a workshop on whiteness that I'm calling Two Truths and a Lie. So these two truths are that the conventional truth. This truth that I'm me and you're you and I have these experiences and you have those experiences based on these bodies that we inhabit. These skandhas arise <coughs> together and form this thing that I like to call me. At the same time that that's happening is this ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is, is that none of that is substantial. None of that is abiding and has its own being. That when we can peer beyond this conventional truth, we get to some understanding of uh, when all of that kind of fades away. Now, in modern Western Buddhism, a lot of times we like to, <laughs> as human beings, I think, we like to categorize things. And so we, we take on the ultimate, we hear about the ultimate truth and we think, oh, that's the goal. That's some kind of nirvanic or liberative experience. And so we focus on this ultimate truth where I stop being a queer guy I stop being a guy and I try to pretend that none of that stuff is here or that it has any meaning or impact in the way that I operate in the world. But that sort of falls apart when you begin to sit down and you look at, wait a minute though, I am a queer guy. I spend my time on retreat partially looking at boys' asses. It's a great distraction. When I'm tired of my own story, cute boys are really helpful. And the guardian says, these things arise together and are supposed to be 
understood and practiced as simultaneous. Neither one is above or separate from the other. So to experience interdependence is to take refuge in our conventional reality of what it is to be me in the world and how it is that that dissolves into you and us and this experience right now. To be me in the world and then sit down in a seat and move my mouth trying to allow you to speak. Conventional truth says I'm giving a talk. Ultimate truth says we're giving a talk. The entire world is giving a talk. There's a really wonderful Zen teacher named Earthlin Manuel Zenju, and she uh, wrote a book called The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. Nagarjuna uh, calls this misunderstanding of the two truths as grasping the snake incorrectly. That by elevating either the conventional, where we spend all of our time just focused on how we're different and separate and unique, or spending all of our time in this place of, oh, we're all one. I don't see race, I don't see gender, I don't see, I'm not this thing called a man. Nagarjuna calls that grasping the snake incorrectly. And Zenju talks about the snake in a really wonderful way. She says, We must acknowledge the relevancy of our lived experience, even within the absolute, even within the absoluteness of our being, beyond our, our material embodiment. There is a rational self on the path of spirit. In other words, our identities in terms of race, sexuality, and gender cannot be ignored for the sake of some kind of imagined invisibility or to attain spiritual transcendence. We are not capable of being embodied selves with a capital S, nor are we meant to be. We cannot become the self with a capital S that we cannot touch, that does not suffer, that has no name, no color, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue. No matter how many labels we drop, we cannot become this transcendent self. There's no way to live in that experience of no self. Because we come with these bodies. Now we can have moments where we can feel interdependent where we can experience interdependence, but to live there is impossible. And I, I sort of say in my paper that uh, the way that we experience that in the moment is by fully experiencing this moment 
in the conventional way. That it's only through the experience of absolutely what it is that I am and what it's like to be me can I experience moments of transcendence, of liberation. And so the practice of experiencing interdependence is actually the practice of experiencing ourselves. So um, my advisor on my thesis committee is a teacher named Daijaku Kinst. She's a Zen Buddhist teacher and a psychotherapist, and she um, <laughs> runs a group down in Santa Cruz. But because she's on my committee, I had to read her book. And she, <laughs> she wrote a book called Trust, Realization, and the Self. And in this book, she gives this, she uses a metaphor that, and she uses it throughout the book to understand this. And she, the metaphor is the, of the tapestry. And so if we look, you know, we have these tapestries and if we look at them, we see one thing. You know, there's a picture of Kuan Yin with the Buddha, and uh, I'm imagining Manjushri. Here is a beautiful tapestry of leaves and, and nature. That tapestry is made up of threads. Now, we can take out a thread, and if we see ourselves as individuals, as the thread. Those threads come and go and threads break and all of those things. But in order to see the beauty of the tapestry, those threads have to be there. We experience the beauty of the whole by those threads being the threads. By us being ourselves, this beautiful picture of the world can emerge. So um, that's a quick way of sort of talking about things in regards to this experiencing interrelatedness. And then how do we use that? How do we understand that? And how do we make community? Because the other thing I point out is that community is also a practice. It's a system. There's the systems of oppression, there's the systems of healing, and there's the system of community. And if we start to think of community as a verb, how is it that we can use, how does that become the experience of healing? And so I look at a couple of Buddhist communities and, and, um, and talk about how it is that they are operating together to sort of provide space for individuals to experience their, inter, their, their own place, to take their place, and also participate in the totality of the experience. I was listening to William Barber yesterday, and one of the things he was speaking about, those of you who don't know, he's the African-American preacher who spoke at the Democratic National Convention, and he's doing a thing um, right now 
around Charlottesville, but also uh, he's calling it the Poor People's Project, and, and he's looking at, at the ways in which poverty contribute to um, the, the disunity that's happening in the world right now. The ways in which the lie of poverty has separated us and pre prevented us from working together to sort of uh, answer these systems of oppression. And so he was, but he was talking about was that if we can start to do the work in our own lives, that if we can start to recognize how it is that I believed something that wasn't true and how do I get the information to unpack that? That when we sit down and we study what it is that it means to be us, what do I believe just because somebody told me that? And then to take that and, and see are there other ways that I've experienced the world that maybe I haven't paid attention to because I was busy believing this lie that I thought I've been told. So as I unpack my own experience of being a man, of being queer, to really look at what did I learn about those things that maybe aren't true. As I started to sort of unpack my own shame around being queer and my own sexuality and my own sexual expression and the ways in which I operate in the world, you know, I got told a lot of stuff. A lot of that wasn't true. I got told a lot of stuff. I grew up in the South in a really conservative family and I got told a lot of stuff around what it meant to be white. I got told a history of racism and white supremacy that protected certain beliefs and understandings. I had to begin to sort of look at Is this true? The hardest part of all of that, the hardest part for me, continues to be what I call non-opposition. Which is, I want to be able to sit down and look at these parts of myself and not push them away. Not push the world away. Believe you when you tell me something about your experience. believe myself when I hear, oh, maybe that's not so true. Maybe I'm not entitled to that. Maybe I really did talk over that woman in that meeting. Maybe I really wasn't too busy to help that person cross the street who couldn't see can I sit with that without opposition? 
without adding anything to the story, which includes not wallowing in shame and guilt, but really just sort of acknowledging, oh yeah, this is my experience of the world. And then to take my vow and to say, can I do it differently next time? Because here's the thing about oppression. It's not just the oppressed who suffer. It's not just the homophobes who suffer when we are busy oppressing queer people, when we're not letting transgender people serve in the ways that they want to serve, when we're not acknowledging people's humanity. It's not just those people who are suffering because of this ultimate thing, the fact that there's no separation. So ultimately, every act in which I'm complicit in oppressing somebody in oppressing someone else is in fact oppressing myself. We know this to be true. Because every moment that I can experience myself fully and then go beyond that and experience this interdependent and interrelatedness, what I see what is there is this connectedness, this lack of separation. Bell Hooks likes to call it um, to love blackness. It's not enough to just be anti-racist. So I've spent the last couple of years really looking at what it is that I love. What it is that I'm bringing to the world. What do I uplift? What is it that I'm encouraging? This soup that makes up all of us, what do I add to it? And is that really who I want to be in the world? Is that really what I want to add to the world? So to heal within oppression is to take our place and then decide what's an appropriate response. And can I do that without opposition? Without adding anything that's not skillful? Now, the interesting thing about my paper is, is that <laughs> it uses a lot more big words to talk about those things. I was rereading it as I was preparing for the talk, and I just thought, oh my god, it's really heady. <laughs> Which is funny, because I, I had to think about how is it that I can come here and talk about how to, to take all of these concepts and then actually make them mean something. Because at the end of the day, words on a page don't really translate to activity in my own world. I'm happy to share my thesis with anybody. I'll give you my card when I leave, and when we leave, and um, you can read it and be bored. 
Um, but uh, really, I want to <laughs> encourage you to practice these ideas and to look at how it is that you're healing in your own life. What is your practice of healing? If we stop making healing an event, if we begin to see Buddhism not as just meditation, but as healing and Buddhist practice as something other than I go to this place on Sundays and I sit down and we meditate for 30 minutes and then I hear somebody talk and then I go out and I live my life and that's somehow separate. But we really look at how do I practice healing in my world? What's it like to be me? And do I like what that is? Because at the end of the day, that's all you've got. I want to wish you all well. And I want to, um, I want to dedicate the merit of our time together today to a young man who um, died of a drug overdose. Uh, I got a call this morning from his mother. And so that's what happens when we can't practice healing. And um, luckily his mother has a practice of healing. Her heart is broken, but um, but you know, broken hearts aren't the worst thing in the world. So thank you all very much, um, and I welcome your questions, comments, additions, subtractions, multiplications. Hi, Thomas. Hi, right? Thank you so much. Um, you started off talking about oppression as um, a system. <laughs> and so, you know, I have in my own mind an understanding, uh, interpretation, or uh, opinions about what oppression is and everything. But I don't want to assume that that's your understanding mm -hmm. um, or anyone else's. And so, you know, is it more than just, uh, I want to hear what you have to say, but is it more than just you know, the misinterpretations of existing history books or the laws that are ensconced, you know, in the land that sort of make this possible and persistent. You know, how would you talk about it as a system? Well, I think that it's all of those things. But it's also, how is it that I would, like, the oppression of queer people. How is it that I understood for a very long time, that what I was doing was wrong. You know, I'm now in a place in my life where I actually celebrate my uniqueness. I have no interest in assimilating into quote-unquote mainstream culture. I like being a faggot, but it took me a long time to get there. <clears throat> so it's not just the systems of, of governments and it's not just the systems of history and who's telling the stories, but it's also the system of what I tell myself, what we tell each other, 
how we treat each other, what we allow and encourage and what we bring to the world, that's part of the system. So if we think of the system as not something separate from our own lives and how we're living, you know, and our own lives are made up of all of these things, you know, how we're relating to the government and the laws and the police and the this and the that, how we're relating to each other, how we get served. How do we check out of the grocery store? There's a system in place that orchestrates that. And then how do I participate in that? You know, one of the great things about being a Buddhist teacher and a Buddhist priest in a is that I live in a certain way reliant on the, gra- on the, the, the generosity of other people. And so I've had to change my system of relating to the world in such a way that I begin to be grateful for all of these really strange things. Like the guy who came to my house yesterday to move my TV. And we were chatting and we were talking about what it was like to be him. And one of the things that was really interesting was people pay him to come and do work for them in their houses and treat him like shit. And I thought, what a really fascinating thing. Here this guy, yes, I'm paying him, but you know, that's a lot of work and I can't do it. I was really grateful that, I, one, I had the resources to do that, to pay him, and that he could do this thing for me that I couldn't do myself. That's all I could think about was, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Um, And yet, that's not how everybody... So there's a system in place that says, oh, I'm entitled to his service because I paid him a certain amount of money and therefore he's going to do it the way I want, you know, and just sort of blah, blah, you know. And, And that's a much different system. So it's, it's, it's all these big things, but it's also all these little things. And it's also how it is that I treat myself at the end of the day. I participate in it by telling myself stories about who I think I am. So it's all of it. Like we want to, again, human nature is to categorize things and sort of put things in boxes so that we can understand them. But if we just sort of go, no, the system is everywhere and everything. Just like the system of healing is everywhere and everything. And the system of community is everywhere and everything. You know, if I walk into a room and I just decide I'm going to make community here, that's a much different approach to being in space with other people. Especially for me as an introvert. Then if I go into a place and, oh, I'm this, you know, and and sort of rely on something other than the normal systems of engagement. So um, try not to categorize, but really look at, what if it's all a system? And then how do I want to participate in that? It's not, so is not having that view that it's everywhere and persistent uh-huh. in all of us. Is that why it's so hard for us to, I mean, we can spot oppression, but we're like, oh, I don't do that. Right. Or the same reason why it's hard for someone to hear that they're a racist or to 
you know, to come to that understanding. I mean, they, they're like, oh yeah, racism is bad, but that's not me. Right. That's the same. Well, we all want to be good. Yeah. <coughs> I want to be a good white guy. I really do. Like, I want a cookie and a gold star. <laughs> you know? And not just around race stuff, but I want it in everything. My first meeting with my teacher, I said to him, I want an A in Zen. I told the story numerous times. His response was, let's start with an F and see how you do. <laughs> Hence, he's my teacher. Uh, but because we categorize these things, right? We want, we want to be one of the good ones. And then when that's challenged, when our own ideas about being a good one gets challenged, or the lie that we've been told about what it means to be a good one gets challenged, Uh, Dr. Barber yesterday was, one of the greatest things he ever said was, he was talking about being in a place where he was being oppressed and he was talking about, with it with an older African-American man and the African-American, this elder to him said, you, they're just believing the lie. What we do to defend our own stories is amazing. And that's why it's so important to take our place and really be in our place without the story, without adding to it. If I can br not bring the story into that place and just stay curious about, well, what's it like to be me now? What's it like to hear that? One of my friends the other day, I said something really rude to her and you know, she just sort of said, you're an asshole. And I was like, well, no, I meant this. And she's like, yeah, but you're still an asshole. <laughs> and I was, instead of sort of saying that, I just kind of had to back up and go, well, what's it like to be called an asshole? Huh. And what am I defending when I just get all, who do I think I am? Most of the time, I'm just a doofus running around trying to do my best. Okay. All right. Hi. Tell me your name. David. Hi, David. Uh, thank you. That's my dad's name. Okay. Uh, this is about many of us here. I want to just share my gratitude for your talk. Really, uh, the I moments of almost tears because things you said have really resonated with what I experienced in that. Um, sitting with yourself as an access point for connecting with interconnectedness really resonated with me deeply. Um, and, and I appreciate you calling out and owning, and, and, I, and I share that with you of, of owning uh, the experience of benefiting from racism and benefiting from as a white man. Um, and it's been a lot of work I've been doing myself and, and with my employees and people I work with and, and working on cultural humility. Mm. Um, so thank you for naming that here. Um, and the couple things that struck me is that I didn't hear you say, and I'm curious, a little bit curious why when you talk about oppression, I don't hear you use the word power, because um, I think that's part of it that falls close to who has the power as what defines oppression in a lot of ways. So I'm just, it's an inquiry, it's almost like an academic question why I didn't use that word. And then when you talk about healing from oppression or healing, the word trauma didn't come up either. And I think that's a really big part because that's kind of the, the result of experiencing um, oppression. And just, just it, it's kind of like a little more intellectual, I guess, inquiry about why this word didn't come up in your 
today? I can I can tell you. Uh, I think, particularly as a white guy, uh, I use power as an excuse, uh -huh. and it's just part of the story. So, I don't I don't talk about it in terms of power because that's not really the access point for me. The access point for me is what am I protecting? Who do I think I am? What's it like to be me? And the first layer of that might be power, but then it's also fear, and 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 you know, and and I'm not going to get what I want, and they're going to you know they're going to take something away from me. You know, you listen to the marchers in Charlottesville, and you hear them say things like, "We're not going to be replaced." That's not about power. That's about fear. So I don't talk about power because for a long time, white people and men in particular have used it as an excuse to just sort of work on the surface. And I don't talk about trauma because um, I think in large groups where there are people that I don't know. I talk about trauma when I do workshops on things. I don't talk about it in environments like this, mostly because people who are traumatized can be, who haven't necessarily uh, healed or practiced healing around that particular trauma, that can be really difficult for them. And so I tend to avoid things that, like I have to speak in a general way here, that I wouldn't, I would treat differently if we spent an entire weekend working together and um, or a longer time. Like my students and I talk about trauma all the time. Um, yes, we are traumatized by oppression. You know, as a queer guy who's been beaten up, as a sissy who's been, you know, called a sissy my whole life, as a, a white guy who has friends who have been shot and killed and have to look at those images. I think about trauma a lot. But um, I tend to not... I, you know, it's about taking, well, and understanding who, I don't know everybody here, so I can't, um, I have to be really mindful of what I bring into the room, because we're going to leave here, and people are going to have to deal with whatever it is I brought into the room. Yeah, yeah. I think we're out of time. We can talk more, I'll give you my card, you can call me, and email me, and... Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Um, so, uh, announcements? Um, hi. Every quarter or so, I make this spiel to you all about the newsletter. GBS produces a newsletter, which is which is sent this time to 334 people, paper copies, as opposed to the. <coughs> online on our website. 277 of those go to prisoners. And I mentioned yeah. that usually. It is an outreach that I don't think we have, a, or we may not have a lot of direct connection to. Um, occasionally we get letters from some of those guys. And Tom passed one on to me from this spring. And I thought I'd read a little bit of it to, to get, uh, let you have an idea of who's at the other end of what we send out here and what kind of effect it has. And then I'm going to follow it up with a, a request for volunteers to help put it all together. We stamp, label, fold, staple, all this stuff. Um, 
Yeah, so this is from Tom, who's in Avenal, New Jersey. I've heard of this prison somewhere, but he's in New Jersey. That's bad enough. Anyway, apologies to New Jersey, I suppose. Dear GBF, I've been meaning to write for a while to thank you for your newsletter. I have thoroughly enjoyed the lessons of Tom Moon, David Lewis, Benjamin Young, and others. The spring 2017 letter, Inside Out, actually in motivated me to write to you. It made me realize how fortunate I am to be where I am incarcerated and how well our chaplain has been helping us to start a prison sangha here. Um, as with many people who come searching for a spiritual path, I was at an all-time low and I was looking for a way out of suffering. And as most of us have found out, the Buddha offered a very simple treatment plan through the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Before starting the practice, I dreaded waking up and facing another day in jail, locked up for the crime I am here for. There is a lot of shame, guilt, and low self-esteem. Today, I can't wait to wake up an hour before the lights come on, sit in meditation, and then when the lights come on, do my daily Dharma reading. Then I feel confident and compassionate and go out in the world here and really open up to people and connect in real relationships, not having to wear masks, not needing to become or to get rid of. It has been truly liberating. So to all the volunteers at GBF and throughout the world who are working with prisoners to bring them the Buddha's message, thank you, thank you, thank you. You all are, as my Angela quote in David Lewis's article states, a rainbow in our clouds. When we thought our journey had reached a dead end, you have shown us a new path, an endless path, with many lessons to be learned and realized. Thank you and bless you all. Peace and meta with a bow. Tom. Wonderful. Speaks for itself. So who can help? I need probably eight or ten minutes after we're after While you're on the topic, though, I want to put a plug in for the Prison Pen Pal Project. Um, and I know you guys are connected to that, but if you don't have a pen pal, you should have one. They're, it's an amazing experience. If anybody wants one, I can provide you. I knew you were involved. involved. We yeah. sort of discontinued it because it seemed wrong to give false hope to these people and say, you're on the waiting list, even though they'll never rise to the top of the waiting list because we just, you know, the need is so great and... Right. But anyway, if you do want one. We can just do the best we can. Yeah. Um, I, I have a pen pal. If you have questions about how it works, I can help with that. Speaking of team cookies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how you know me, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, stay and fortify yourself for the uh, work ahead. Um, there's, um, there is team cookies. Um, and enjoy the uh, fellowship of the Sangha. Uh, if you have tea, just put your cup in the sink and I'll take care of it. Um, and um, let's see, at 12.30, I'll be coming around with the dawn walks. Um, so please feel free to be as generous as you possibly can. 
Um, at 12.30, some people gather at the front door. Uh, today, they'll gather maybe a little later um, to go to lunch. Um, and everybody's welcome to do that. Um, there's a sign-up sheet um, on the credenza if you'd like to be added to um, our sources of information. Keep. Uh, two quick uh, reminders. Uh, two weeks ago, our speaker, Sister Mary, was here and uh, was talking about uh, Richard Greit with his new book. Uh, he's going to be speaking at CIIS, I think, a week from Thursday for $10. And uh, that might be something you want to hear, as well as Terry Grosso on Fresh Air on NPR did an interview with him. You can get a free listen to the free podcast. It's really, really good to hear. And the second uh, reminder, uh, Danny Nicoletta, who uh, uh, came to town in the early 70s, and he worked at the Harvey Milk camera store, and he was portrayed in the movie Milk, if you saw that. And he's been a long time... Uh, Chronicler in uh, San Francisco. And also, he was the main man to uh, make sure that the, the statue of Harbor Milk is in City Hall. Anyway, he came out with a big book. You might have seen some of the publicity around. He's going to be at Dog Ear Books mm -hmm. this afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, probably making a little presentation and signing books. So, after folding newsletters, you want to move over, it should be an interesting uh, couple hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to remind everyone, the annual, GBS annual retreat, October 27th and 29th, it's now accepting reservations, and our Dharma teacher, Steve Turney, is speaking here next week, if you want to get a preview of what he's all about. And then, um, so, you mentioned um, a couple weeks ago, Sister Mary Peter uh, had a great talk that uh, she gave to us. And that was sort of a springboard um, for what we're going to be doing October 1st will be an all-sangha discussion, instead of small groups, we'll all meet um, to discuss if we collectively think that perhaps um, GBF might play um, a wider role in society and other than just coming and sitting here and with each other. So, it's, and it's just a discussion to see, to sort of poll us and see what thoughts we might have. I'm sorry, that's just a week from today? October 1st. Oh, October. a month from two weeks from today. Oh, okay. Yeah, October 1st. Oh, sorry. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and then, uh, Steve, so next week the speaker is Steve Tierney, um, professor of community mental health and chair of the Masters in Counseling uh, Psychology Core Curriculum at CIIS. He is a licensed psychotherapist in California and is nationally certified counselor. Stephen is an ordained Buddhist priest and is the co-founder and chief education officer of the San Francisco Mindfulness Foundation. SF Mindfulness Foundation provides mindfulness-based relapse prevention and addiction services provider training. Dr. Tierney lectures and leads workshops and retreat nationally and has taught at a number of universities, including current assignments at the University of San Francisco. JFK University and the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. Stephen's areas of interest include Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based therapies for addiction, recovery, and resiliency services. So he'll be our teacher here and at the and at the retreat. He's a nice guy. Really good friend of mine.
Um, and then for new folks, Donna is uh, a polyword, and it's, uh, I guess the, uh, the teachings that um, that we hear are given away freely because they're considered priceless. They're unattached, and they're unconditional generosity. So we ask for your unconditional generosity um, by donating um, to the expenses that pay for the rent for this room, honorarios um, for our speaker. Um, oh, the work we do with um, uh, homeless youth and all the things that make the song tick and talk. So um, the suggested donation is ten dollars. And so with a scallop for dedication in there, we have a double dedication in there. So one goes to By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.